um, before we pray today, I wanna give you just a quick staff update. We have one of our staff members in Jasper who maybe some of you know by the name of Frank Bramble has been in the hospital for the last couple weeks. And uh, he went in right at the new year and really has, when he went in, he found out he had pneumonia and we didn't think it was gonna be that long, but then things have just kind of progressively gotten worse. And so over the last week or so has really just been fighting ultimately for his life. And he's got pneumonia really bad and there's a whole host of other things um, going on. And we as a staff prayed for him this week. And um, obviously those of you at our Jasper campus, you know Frank very well and know how vital he is to our ministry there. Um, But we wanted to include the rest of the body to pray for him. Uh, You may know him, um, but you may not. And even if you don't, we would ask for you to pray for him. Um, He is just, you know, it's just, I mean, he is a fighter. He's been through a lot in his life. And so we actually had a prayer gathering at the hospital on Tuesday night. And it was an honor to pray for him and, and just talking and thinking about it. Wanted to have our whole church pray for him, which, you know, this is one of those things that unfortunately, you know, has become a little common. I mentioned several months ago, one of our other staff members, Jason, who's actually here at our Canton campus today. Um, he had a tragic accident. He's been doing progressing and, uh, but still has complications. In fact, we found out he has multiple infections this week. And so be praying for him as well. Uh, we really do believe in the power of prayer. And we believe that not only God loves these two men, but we love them both. And uh, we, both of them are such an example of God's grace. They both got saved here, baptized here, served here, now are on staff here. Um, And so we are gonna take a moment as we normally do to pray before the message, but include them in our prayer. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for loving us. And God, we thank you that even though we as believers are not immune from suffering, we're not immune from cancer and health complications, God, that even though those things come to us as well, we can know that you're with us and that you love us. And we can cry out to you. And we can lean on you. And so God, we want to come uh, on behalf of Frank right now uh, as a church and ask you to heal his body. God, he is going through so much and it has been such a tumultuous couple weeks. And God, we just pray that you would give the doctors wisdom, the nurses, and thank you for all of them that are caring for him. And And God, we are so grateful for modern medicine and how um, you have given us wisdom as human beings to figure things out. And so God, we just pray that you continue to give them wisdom, uh, give Barb, Frank's wife, wisdom to know how to best care for him, his father as well. But God, we also know that there's times when we reach the limits of human wisdom, things that we don't understand, but we know that you do and that you're above all those things and that you do heal. And so, God, we ask you to heal him. Um, Bring him out of this. um, Heal his lungs, his organs, God. Um, Frank is a fighter, and he is such a vital part of our church. And 
I can't imagine um, our church without him. And so God, we ask you to bring him back to full health. Pray for Barb as well, that you would continue to comfort her. And this is such a hard time. There's so many of us who know this feeling. And God, we continue to pray for Jason. We thank you for how you brought him to this point and ask you to continue to heal his leg, uh, get these bacteria out of his body. God, give him full function again. Um, God, we thank you for how you've moved in his life and Frank's life. And God, we know you're not done. And so we thank you that you are continuing to make a way and we ask you to do that. God, as we get into the message now, we want to, as always, submit ourselves to this time and listen to your spirit and what you are saying to us. God, would you fill us with your spirit? Help us. God, we can't see or understand these words without you. So would you enable us to do what we can't do? As always, God, help me to communicate it in a way that is honoring to you and is helpful. And God, we thank you for these words. And God, we thank you for not only the authority that they have in our life, but the direction that they give us. And as we open it now, we ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please uh, continue praying for them. And, and obviously we will update you um, as we get information accordingly. But if you were here last week, we kicked off a new series that we do at the beginning of every year called Abide, where we take some time at the beginning of the year to refocus our heart on abiding in Christ, as he talked about in John 15, that if we abide in him, his words abide in us, then we will bear much fruit. And so we've done, we've done this now, I don't know, five or six years for quite some time. And it's such a great way for us as a church to, at the beginning of the year, kind of set aside time. You know, holy, being holy means to be set apart. You know, and so we take this time at the beginning of the year to where we set aside 21 days, and it begins on Monday, January 16th. If you're watching this on Sunday, that's tomorrow. And it's going to be a 21-day period. It'll take us to February 5th. And we are asking our entire church to fast from social media, from all kinds, you know, whatever media you consume the most to take a, a fasting break from that. Um, and so, you know, a lot less Instagram reels or highlight TikToks. I mean, you know, give up your dancing on TikTok for 21 days, whatever it is that you're into, all right? But then also some kind of food component as well. Um, there's all different kinds of way to fast. This information's on our website, a total food fast, right? We're fasting from all food. You got the Daniel fast where you're fasting, you know, eating mostly fruits and vegetables, uh, intermittent fasting, all kinds of ways. And it's a discipline that the Bible expects that we do. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you fast, not if, but when. And it's a discipline, I think, that really over the last probably decade, the church has become, uh, rem has remembered, I should say, I was going to say a lot more conscious of, because I think it helps us in ways that other disciplines so often don't, because fasting really gets at the root of our hunger, really gets at what do we want, because you start fasting for a couple days, you start to find out real quick what kind of person you are. All right, because that that side of you that you kind of keep maintained will start to come out as people say you don't just get hungry, you get hangry, right? You get hungry and angry at the same time. 
And so the reason why we do this is it's a spiritual discipline we want to start developing in our lives. And as I said last week, if you were here, because it helps us understand what is it that we want most. As Jesus asked the two disciples in John chapter one, what do you want? And so I ended the message last week saying, what is it that you want? Because we are what we want. And what we want directs what we do. And so this 21-day period is a time for us to redirect our wants, to reorient our hearts, to say, God, we want you more than even our necessary food. What we want is you. We want to see you. As the Beatitudes said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, how do we get a pure heart? Well, an earlier Beatitude says, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness. So you put that together. If you want to see God, then you will hunger for righteousness or holiness. And so we're going to add to that this week. And I you know, was preaching through the gospel according to John. We took a break for that to do this. And we'll get back into that in a few weeks. And as I said last week, I just couldn't get out of John. And it's the same true this week. All right. So if you got a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter four. Last week was John chapter one. And so this is kind of a rehashing, if you will, going back, looking at some texts we'd already looked at. And next week's message, more than likely, is going to be out of John chapter six. I just can't quit it. All right. But it's so good. But the reason why in this story in John chapter four is what Jesus says about what he wants, what Jesus says about what he wants as it pertains to food and hunger. And so I think it's a great text. So we're going to start in verse 27 and uh, I'm going to read 27 through 30 and I'm going to read out of the NIV. Uh, I normally teach out of the ESV, but I love how it says it here in these verses in NIV, just like last week. So you can go ahead and turn there. But before we do that, I want to give you a quote from a book that I just love and it really has kind of helped shaped me. And when it comes to this topic of we are what we want. And the book title is called You Are What You Love. And this helps us kind of understand this whole di the, uh, concept that I talked about last week. We are what we want. So I've got this quote here on the screen as you're getting ready for John. It says this, to be human is to be for something, directed towards something, oriented towards something. To be human is to be on the move, pursuing something, after something. We are like existential sharks. We have to move to live. Next slide. The heart is the existential chamber of our love, and it is our loves that orient us towards some end or telos. It is not just that I know some end or believe some telos. More than that, and here's the operative sentence, I long for some end. I want something, and I want it ultimately. And so the argument is we are what we want, Whatever it is that we want is going to direct what we do. And so we ended last week talking about you are what you want. And as I was thinking about that this week, you know, Jesus asked his two disciples, what do they want? Well, then I thought, well, Jesus asked them, what do they want? What if we ask Jesus what he wants? And that's what this story is going to help us see. So let's go to John chapter four, verse 27 through 30. It says this. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you, what's that next word there? Want. If you're new, I'd like for you to call and respond occasionally. All right, let's just try that again. What do you, what? Want. want. Or, why are you talking with her? So they didn't ask that, but they wanted to. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. 
Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. So if you don't know the story here in John chapter four, again, I've taught on this. You can go back and listen to those messages. This is Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And it's a rather famous story because it really kind of captures the heart of who Jesus is. In John chapter four, it says he was heading back up north to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. Now, if you've been a part of church at all, you know that the Jewish people, the Samaritan people didn't like each other. And so typically the Jewish people would go around Samaria, but chapter four says Jesus had to go to Samaria. He had to. And the point that I made back when we did this text, I think it was back in 2021, is that Jesus in our lives has to go to some area. Not just Samaria, but some area. And what I meant by that then, if you were here, you might remember, is all of us have some area in our life that we would rather Jesus not go to. All of us have some area in our life. All of us are the Samaritan woman in some way. We would rather just go about our day and Jesus not meet us in that area. We all have some area that really is kind of off limits to God. That, that when a pastor starts talking about that area, the hairs on the back of your neck start standing up like, oh no. It's always amazing to me when people are like, I don't want to go to church, they're all hypocrites. Which I always affectionately say, you're right, we are hypocrites, but so are you. Everybody's a hypocrite. Maybe the reason why people who say that don't want to go to church is because they know they're hypocrites and they might be found out, right? So we always deflect away to those things. And here's what I want you to understand. You can be a follower of God for decades and still have areas of your heart that are off limit to him. That the moment that he starts messing with that area of your life, you start getting anxious. You're like, oh, no, no, no. I mean, I love God, but I got this little area over here. And so Jesus goes to Samaria. Here's the thing that you need to understand about Jesus if you haven't understood this yet. He is relentless about your heart. He is relentless about your heart. There are no off limits to God. This is the part, and I've said it many times, no one told me when I started following Jesus how relentless he was. I mean, the good news is, right, he loves us unconditionally. The bad news is he comes after us unconditionally. Right? Because he wants to make sure that every area of our life loves him, that every area of our life is submitted to him. And so he's talking to this woman, and, and the disciples come back, and they're surprised to see that he's talking to her. There's a couple reasons why I think that is. One, it's the middle of the day, and typically there weren't people at the well during that time. And culturally, women would be the ones that would go to the well to get the water, and they would normally go in the morning or in the evenings. So they would get it in the morning, so they would have it, they would go again later in the evening. But in the middle of the day, typically there wasn't a lot of people there. And so this woman comes in the middle of the day primarily because there's not gonna be a lot of people there, and she doesn't want to see people. She doesn't wanna to talk to people, because as we know from the story, she has lived a very checkered past. Jesus engages her about her lifestyle. And this is what's crazy about how Jesus engages with her. He tells her everything that she ever did, and she's excited about it. She goes off and runs and tells people, come meet the person who told me everything I ever did. See, he went into some area in her life, right? He went into every area. He was meddling. And then the second reason I think that 
they were surprised is because typically a rabbi or a teacher wouldn't engage with a woman in public like this for the fear, right, of it being kind of insinuated that something else is going on. And I don't know if you know this about Christians or church people in general, y'all are good at making up rumors. We just do it in the form of prayer requests all the time, right? And so you wouldn't engage with a woman in public like this, especially a woman that you could kind of tell just by looking at her that she is a different kind of woman. And so they come back, he's talking to her, and they're surprised. Then she leaves, goes to get to the townspeople, and they're coming back. And then verse 31 says this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Now, I've said this many times, but I like to come back around it again. I love this text because of the simplicity of it. That when the disciples, remember, they went into town, probably at the direction of Jesus to go get food. And now they're back and they brought the food and they're like, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus is like, I got food that you don't know about. And their first thought was just on a natural level, who got this boy some chicken nuggets? Where did you get food? Who drove down to Whataburger and bought him a number one mayonnaise and cheese only? In case you're wondering, that's my order, all right? And I do accept Whataburger gift cards as a form of a love language, all right? In fact, there's a guy in our church who gave me Whataburger gift cards like six months before it ever opened. And I'm like, I know he loves me. But the reason why I love this story is because the disciples, they're just very simple dudes. In fact, later it says in Acts, they were common, ordinary men. And I've told you that before. The Greek word for that is idiots. Literally, idiotos is the Greek word. They're like, wait, but these dudes are idiots. And here's why I find that comforting. A lot of times when I'm following Jesus, I feel like an idiot too. I feel like Jesus is trying to point out something that has a greater meaning to me and I can't see it. And I, so I love the disciples here. They don't naturally think spiritual things. They don't think Deuteronomy 8.3 where God said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but at, out of every word of the mouth of God, they instantly think Zaxby's. Who, who got this? I mean, you, got, you, you like, you know, hiding some tater tots in your pockets, right? You Napoleon Dynamite, what's up with this? But then Jesus responds in verse 34, and here is the point of the whole sermon. 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now let's talk about that phrase because it's quite an amazing phrase. You know, Jesus we know, was both God and man. 100%, 100%. Not 50-50, he was fully God and he was fully man. But the thing that we don't always appreciate or really think about and understand is that Jesus didn't use his godness to enable his manness to obey. What I mean by that is he wasn't Superman in that he used his knowledge and ability and capacity as God to kind of empower his humanness in a, in a way that it would almost be like he was cheating. 
Because Hebrews says he was tempted in every way we are tempted. He was tested in every way that we are tested. And so he had to be tested and tempted in every way that we were as humans. So Jesus didn't use his nature as God to somehow kind of supersede his human nature in order to direct him. What I mean by that is this. Jesus had to grow in his humanity just like we do. One of the strangest verses in all the Bible is this, where it says Jesus had to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with both God and man. So Jesus had to develop in his humanity just like we do. And yes, he was sinless from birth because his birth was different. And so he started with the holiness that we don't have. But check this, he had to grow in that holiness. He had to maintain that holiness. And a lot of times in church world, this almost can seem like sacrilegious to us. But here's what I'm trying to point out to you. Jesus, in his humanity, had to direct his will just like we do. Jesus had to bring his hunger. He had to bring his appetites, his desires, his will underneath submission to God, just like we do. And he had to do that in his humanity. And so it's interesting that Jesus would say, my food is to do the will of God. Now, Jesus had to eat, right? Yeah, he had to eat. And that's the crazy thing when we think about Jesus. And and again, we had church councils over this stuff in the early days of church world because some people would overemphasize his divinity. Some people would overemphasize his humanity. And thankfully, through those church councils, the, the church leaders affirmed both of them. But Jesus had to eat. Jesus went to the bathroom. I mean, think about that. We're like, I don't like that image of Jesus on the toilet. That's just weird to me. But he was human. So he got hungry, right? He fasted for 40 days at the beginning of his ministry. And it says he was hungry. Yeah, that's what happened when you don't eat for 40 days. And the whole concept of food, right? We eat food because it sustains us. God built us to be dependent. We have to sleep. If you don't, you know, if you don't sleep for like six days straight, you will die. We have to sleep. We have to eat. We have to drink water. We even have to have relationships. We know that if a baby doesn't develop um, good uh, connections with their parents early on in childhood, it will literally stunt their physical growth. So the whole concept of you being a self-made man or a self-made woman is hogwash because you are dependent on things outside of yourself every day to live. So food is one of those things that God built us to be dependent upon. And we'll talk more about this next week because it humbles us. But food also satisfies, right? And it's okay to find satisfaction in food. God made food and he made it good. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, every time you cut open a watermelon or a cantaloupe, you should be like, dang, God is good. Right? Every time you eat a steak, and he did give us dominion over them cows, right? And so you know that God is good. It's it's okay to be satisfied in those things. But as I told you last week, where it becomes sinful is when we're satisfied in those things more than when we're satisfied in God. 
when we hunger for those things more than we hunger for God. So here's what I find so intriguing by Jesus's statement. He uses the word food, my food. So watch this. Jesus is saying, the thing that comes from outside of me and sustains me and satisfies me is God. The thing that comes from outside of me and sustains me and satisfies me. See, Jesus had to be filled with the Holy Spirit just like we do. In fact, Matthew 4 says the Spirit led him to the wilderness. And after that 40 days of fasting, he came out in the power of the Spirit. And here's what I'm going with all of this. Jesus is not only our Savior in that he lived a sinless, perfect life and he substituted himself for us. He's not just our savior. He also is our example. He's our example. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to do what Jesus did. So let me give you this point and I'll unpack it some more. We must add habits to our hunger. We must add habits to our hunger. See, no doubt Jesus at this point in time was hungry. I mean, he sent his boys into the village to get food. But then he uses this opportunity to engage with this woman, which was the whole reason why he went to Samaria in the first place, to sustain and satisfy him. So he has another kind of food. And this is what I want us to see. Jesus not only wanted to do the will of God, but he developed habits of doing the will of God. Notice the words. He says, my food is to do the will of God. Notice he didn't say, my food is to know the will of God. Obviously, the other part of him was God. He knew it. But the human part had to do what he knew. One of the coolest verses to me in John, uh, Luke chapter four, it said, Jesus went into the temple and then it says this phrase, as was his custom. As was his custom. See, Jesus had customs. Jesus had habits. And here's what I want us to see. Last week, we talked about hungering for holiness. This week, we're talking about habits for holiness. Because see, hungering for something is not enough. You can hunger for it, but you have to develop habits that are corresponding to that hunger to get you to what you want. See, what Jesus wanted most, and that's what's so interesting to me about this question. Remember when the disciples walked up, they see Jesus talking to this woman, and it says, they didn't say, but this is how you know John was one of the disciples, because how did he know what they didn't say if they didn't say it? Because he was one of them, and he knew what they wanted to say. And it says, what they didn't say is, what do you want? Now, more than likely, they were thinking about that to the woman, like saying, what does this woman want? But then the second question we know is about Jesus said, they didn't say, why are you talking with her? So more than likely, that was the case. But let's just assume that both questions were oriented towards Jesus. Not only why are you talking to her, but watch this, what do you want? See, Jesus had wants and desires, and those wants and desires directed him, and they led him to talk to this woman. 
And so when we think about Jesus having a hunger, he had a want. He wanted to do the will of God. But here's what's different about you and me when it comes to us versus Jesus. Jesus didn't just want to do it. He did it. He did it. He developed habits. And this is what I want you to see when it comes to how important habits are. Because see, habits don't just correspond to our hunger. They don't just follow. Like I said last week, what you want directs what you do. Habits don't just follow your hunger. Habits actually start to shape your hunger. Let me give you this quote from my favorite theologian, Dallas Willard. I have it here on the screen. I've used it often many times, and this will not be the last time I use it because it's that good. He says, a discipline is any activity within our power that we engage in, now watch this, to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. So let me say that again. A discipline is any activity within our power that we engage in to enable us what we cannot do by direct effort. Now let me give you an example and explain this. If I ask anybody watching right now to grow muscle, not flex your muscle, grow your muscle. You can't do it, not by direct effort. And don't you wish you could? Don't you wish you could just say bicep muscle grow? Don't you wish you could just incinerate fat at a command? Muscle grow, fat be gone, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? But we can't do that. We can't do it by direct effort. But here's what we can do. And I use this example all the time. When it comes to growing muscle and burning fat, we can work out. Because you know what happens when you work out. When you lift weights, when you have some kind of resistance training, right? you tear, you literally tear the muscle fibers. When you're lifting that kind of weight, you tear them. And then your body thinks, what the heck are you doing? It takes protein and it builds your muscles back stronger so that that same amount of weight won't tear them once again. And this is how you trick your muscles. You say, ha ha, I'm gonna trick you again. I'm gonna do more weight. Or I'm gonna do different movements. It's called muscle confusion, right? And here's, what, here's how it goes. You can lift weights. And then that enables you to do what you can't do, which is grow muscle. Now, if that's how we grow physically, don't you think the same God would make that how we grow spiritually? You will not grow muscle if you don't engage in habits that tear the muscle and make your body rebuild it. Likewise, you will not grow spiritually unless you engage in habits that tear away at your old muscle and force your spirit to build them back bigger. That's why we engage in habits. So we gotta add habits to our hunger. A desire or a want to is not enough if it doesn't lead to what I'm doing. We have to develop customs. We have to develop habits of holiness where we start engaging in the practices of spiritual disciplines. See, I can't make myself more compassionate. I can't make myself more forgiving by direct effort. I can't. 
But through the power of God, he can enable me to engage in practices like reading the Bible, like praying, like fasting. And then lo and behold, what's going to happen is I'll become a more forgiving person. We understand this. Well, maybe we don't. It's like trying to learn a foreign language. If you speak English and you don't speak Spanish, you can't speak Spanish by just like trying harder to speak Spanish. Which some of you don't understand, speaking English louder is not Spanish. <laughs> Even if you know a few Spanish words like el baño, donde esta, right? Like, and you throw English all around it, that's Spanglish. It ain't Spanish. And trying harder is not going to communicate a message. No, you have to submit yourself to a process of discipline of learning and then over time, you'll learn how to speak the language. See, the same is true. We keep trying to be compassionate people without engaging in habits that actually make us compassionate. Let me go through those fruits of the Spirit. We keep trying to become more at peace. Like, I'm going to have more peace today. Well, you're never going to get peace unless you engage in the habits that enable the spirit to actually grow peace. The one I use all the time, patience. You cannot make yourself more patient by direct effort. You know that, don't you? Because how many times have you said, I'm gonna be more patient? And then God puts you in a situation that requires patience. You're like, ah, I didn't got it. <laughs> you can't get patience by direct effort. You get it indirectly by engaging in habits of holiness, that through those, the Spirit builds patience into you. Does that make sense what I'm saying? This is what's so important and why we're doing this 21 days of prayer and fasting. In fact, on our website, you can go just click at the top where it says abide. There's all the information that you need on there. And on there is an abide guide that looks just like this. I printed it out for you so you could see it. And on the third page is a list of 21 scriptures for 21 days. And again, it starts Monday, January 16th. And fasting isn't just about doing away with food. It's about feasting on something else that's not your normal food. See, Jesus was fasting from food, but he was feasting on the will of God. See, we are called to fast from food, but we're called to feast on the word of God. And so over the next 21 days, you have these scriptures, and these are some core scriptures in the Bible that we put together for you. And I'm praying, in fact, I did this this morning. I took my journal and I wrote in all the dates, day one, wrote the scripture, day two, wrote the scripture, day three, wrote the scripture. And then every day, engage with these scriptures. Again, don't just fast, feast on the word of God. And here's what's amazing. After you feast on the word of God for 21 days, guess what's gonna happen? You're going to be a more holy version of yourself. I mean, it's going to be really tough for the first couple days, especially if you went without coffee like I'm doing. I mean, I had a headache for three days straight. And then I would just smell coffee and get another headache. But here's what's amazing. See, I would engage in coffee because I love it, but then also the byproduct of energy. But you know what's amazing? After I've detoxed from that, my body learned how to live off a different kind of energy source. See, that's what happens when we engage in the word of God. We learn, watch this, how to be sustained and satisfied with a different kind of food. But here's what's crazy about us. 
See, the concept of us going without food for 21 days seems radical to so many of us. We're like, 21 days? I saw some churches doing seven. What the heck is up with you? Why do you have to come up with 21? Because God told me so. Just kidding. I'm just saying. Don't you love that when people are like, because God told me so. How do you argue with that one? Now, the reason why is this is what we see in the scriptures. Daniel did it for 21 days. Right? He, he didn't eat the king's choice food. He ate fruits and vegetables. And now we have this whole thing called the Daniel diet. You can do that for 21 days. But here's what's crazy. The concept of going without something for 21 days seems radical to us. And we're like, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, 21 days without social media? I'm not going to see all the cat memes. How am I going to survive? How am I going to know what's going on in the world? I don't know. How did you do it like 10 years ago? I think you'll be okay. But let me ask you this question. The thought of going without God for 21 days, how does that feel with you? The thought of not doing his will for 21 days? Isn't it amazing how easy it is you can go 21 days without reading the Bible? And I'm not trying to shame you. Please don't hear me say that. This isn't a shame culture here. I'm just trying to get you to see. Your hunger directs your habits, but your habits also begin to shape your hunger. And so it's a time for you to reorient your hunger by reorienting your habits. Let me give you another quote from this same book that I quoted earlier. You are what you love. I love what he says here. Listen to this. I have it here on the screen. It is crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, longings, desires, and cravings are learned. We learn to love then not by primarily acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. Next slide. In short, if you are what you love and love is a habit, then discipleship is a rehabilitation of your loves. This means that discipleship is more a matter of reformation than of acquiring information. See, the problem with most of us is we gather together weekly and we get information, but we don't inhabit it. We don't take that information and then use it to develop new habits that we inhabit that information and then by doing what we know, then we are formed into the image of Christ. As I took the straw poll last week, how many of us know what we need to do, but we don't do it? So the issue is not sheerly information. It's inhabitation. It's reformation. And how does that happen? Through imitation. Here's what's crazy. In fact, I, I mean, yes, our culture has gone insane, but the thing that our culture doesn't understand is we have shifted to this culture now of I feel this. And we talk a lot about our feelings. Even I'm born this way. And, and even though our feelings are real, I will never tell somebody their feelings aren't real, but I will say your feelings aren't always right. 
Because if it's all about how I feel, then what if what I feel jeopardizes what is true and what is right? Then my feelings are wrong. But let's go a step further. What our culture doesn't seem to understand is what we feel is shaped by what we imitate. See, let me say this to you. All of us grew up in families, right? And if your family was anything like mine, you probably grew up in a dysfunctional one. Even if you got great parents, there's still some dysfunction. And yes, we are hardwired genetically. There are certain proclivities and certain sinful things that we we just are hardwired into them. But also we learn as we grow up in families how we do things. We are shaped not just by our families, but by our culture who tells us how to feel. And so we watch it, we imitate it, and then we feel it. And what we don't understand is that emotion follows, if you take the E off the word emotion, what's left? Motion. See, we don't understand we've habituated ourselves into this feeling. We watched somebody else. We inhabited that by seeing it over and over and over again, we're desensitized to it, and then we start doing it, and then we start feeling it. Let me give you an example of my own household. I learned in my family that when we had arguments and fights and discussions, now thank God Jesus found my family, my family's much different, but back then, we, didn't, we would have arguments, fights, we didn't talk about it. What we did at the end of the day is we ate a big old bowl of Rocky Road ice cream. By the best ice cream country on the planet, Bluebell, which if you didn't know, is also from Texas. Just making my case all the time of all the good things come from Texas. And so my mom, every night just about, would sit down at the end of the day. My dad would go to bed early. My mom had back issues, so she would fall asleep in her chair and she would eat a big old bowl of Rocky Road ice cream because she deserved it, she earned it, and that's how she comforted herself. Well, as I got older, I started staying up late with her and I would fall asleep on the couch. We would watch movies and TVs together and then she went from making one bowl to two. One for her and one for me. So I learned from an early age, this is how we relax. This is how we unwind. This is how we deal with emotions. And as much as I love Bluebell, Rocky Road can't fix me. But I learned that. I learned it. It's called a learned helplessness. And so many of us have been habituated into our feelings and we don't even realize it. They become second nature to us. They become second nature to us. When I get angry, this is what I do. It's what I saw others do, and now I imitate it. And now with the advent of social media and videos, we have a lot more influences that we're imitating. Let me give you this point if you're taking notes. Reformation is required because deformation has occurred. Let me say that again. Reformation is required because deformation has occurred. We've all been deformed. 
Now, we understand when a child is born and they have physical deformities, we understand that concept physically, but we don't think about that emotionally or spiritually. See, we're born sinners, right? We know that. But we don't take it to heart to understand this is called um, not only original sin, but total depravity. Like we are born bent and broken and deformed. But that's not the all of the story. We're also shaped, habituated by our families and the culture around us. We'll talk more about this next week. But you know the root word of culture is cult. See, you're in a cult and you didn't even know it. Do you realize that? It's deforming you all the time. It's forming you into a different image. The world, the flesh, and the devil, that's the unholy trinity that's at work shaping you. So reformation is required because deformation has occurred. So reformation happens, watch this, not only when we're born again, See, the Bible speaks about the second birth. Jesus talks about it in John 3. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are a new creation in Christ. We are born again. Our spirit was dead, but now we're made alive. Ephesians 2. But God made us alive together with Christ. So we're born again. We have a second birth. But watch this. Just like after your first birth, you were habituated into the ways of your family and your culture In your second birth, you have to be habituated into the new ways of your new family and the new kingdom. You have to be formed. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about this concept of second nature. You know, we use the phrase, it's like a maxim, where we say, oh, that's second nature to me. We'll say, I know that like I know the back of my what? Hands, right? I would guess most of you, When you leave our gatherings today, you're not going to use Google or Apple Maps to get you home because that's habituated. You know how to get there. You can get there almost on autopilot, which is scary when you're driving cars. You ever driven somewhere and you don't even remember how you got there? Because it was habituated. See, here's the problem. The problem is Things are so easy for us to do that are contrary to God's will. It's like second nature to us. In fact, let me go a step further. It's first nature. See, you don't have to think about breathing, do you? And that's a good thing. Aren't you glad? Because you might forget about it and be like, right? You don't have to think about uh, blinking. Your heart doesn't have to think about beating. It just happens. But see, when we're born, the Bible calls it our natural man or the old man. When we're born, there's also sinful ways that we don't have to think about. You ever done something sinful and then later think, what was I thinking? And I've said this often, you weren't thinking. That was the problem. Because if you would have thought about it, you would have never ended up in this circumstance. But you weren't thinking, why? Because it was so natural to you. But here's what I'm saying to you. Not only do we have a second birth, We're born again, but we have to develop habits of holiness that become second nature to us. A second nature. Let me say it to you like this. If you're presented with an opportunity 
where you have to have compassion on somebody. Someone's done something wrong and you have to have compassion on them. If you have to think about it, then holiness isn't your second nature. Well, I need to think about being compassionate for this person. What's not second nature to you? But see, when you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap the fruit of the Spirit, and then compassion will become second nature to you. You don't have to think about it anymore. You're just compassionate. Let me go a step further. This one's really going to hit you. If you have to think about forgiving someone, then the Spirit of Jesus hasn't become second nature to you. Because check this, when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't even have to think about it. He said, with his arms spread wide, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Jesus didn't have to think about that. Why? Because that was his nature. He knew forgiveness like he knew the back of his hand. And, and I've been pastoring for over two decades now, and here's what trips me out with church people sometimes. Sometimes people are like, ah, I just don't know if I can forgive them, pastor. And then they'll say this, I need to pray about it. For real? You need to pray about something that God commands you to do? I can tell you the answer. Yes! In fact, I'll go a step further. Jesus says, if you can't forgive, you're not forgiven. Now, I'm not saying that's how you earn your way into heaven. Don't hear what I'm saying. What I'm saying is forgiven people forgive. It becomes second nature to them. They don't have to think about it. But yeah, there's so many people thinking about the things that God wants to become second nature and they don't understand that they may not even be saved. Because when the spirit of God gets a hold of your heart and you start habituating into the new family of God, forgiveness becomes natural and normal for you. That's how we know. Let me go a step further, serving others. If you have to think about serving others, see, Jesus said the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Serving was natural to Jesus. He didn't have to think about it. And it amazes me how many church people are like, yeah, I don't have to think about that one. Last one, generosity. See, God is a generous God. One of the best verses in the Bible, John 3, 16, you know it, for God so loved the world that he gave. God's a giver. Here's what's amazing. God didn't even have to think about sending his son. And Jesus didn't even have to think about giving his life. It was second nature to them. And he wants that to become second nature to us. How does that happen? Last point. We develop habits of holiness and then they develop us. We develop habits of holiness and then they, the habits, develop us. See, Jesus had customs he had practices. He had habits. He had things that he did. And it was the doing of those things perfectly over a period of 33 years that continued to enable his humanness to have the ways and the will of God as second nature. And the good news is now by the power of the risen 
Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit, you and I can develop these habits. And then by doing what we can do, we'll be enabled to do what we can't do. And we'll become holier people. So I ended the question last week with, what do you want? And I'm going to end it this week with a different question as a follow-up. What do you need to do to get what you want? If you want to see God, you will not see him without a hunger and without habits. And so as we take this next 21 days, I'm praying that you will develop habits that God is calling you to do. Look at the life of Jesus and say, God, I want to grow in holiness like that. So I am going to do these things. This is what I need to do to get what I want. Let's pray. Father, thank you, not only for the words of this word, but God, how giving your son and the son giving his life was second nature to you. You did it without thinking about it because it's who you are. You're a giver. You are a forgiver. You are compassionate. You are graceful. You are merciful. And you didn't have to think about whether or not you were going to redeem us because that's who you are. And God, I know there are people here today that as I've been talking about this whole second birth, they haven't had that. They haven't experienced that. They're still their old self, their normal, natural self. And so God, I pray right now that you would save them by your spirit, open their eyes to see the truth of who Jesus is and forgive them. No one looking around here as we close both locations. If you're here today and you've never experienced a second birth where God made you alive, where you trusted Christ and you were saved, then you can experience that right now. Bible says, Romans 9 and 10, if you'll confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you'll be saved. So I'm gonna lead you in a confession and there's nothing magical about the prayer. I'm just introducing you to my father. You don't have to do it out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son, Jesus, in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me, forgive me. I'm trusting him alone. Thank you for loving me. Now, again, nobody looking around or talking. If you're in one of our physical locations and you just pray that with me, would you just simply lift up your hand? We got men and women in Canton and Jasper that'll walk around, put a gift in your hand. And when they do, you can put your hand down. And then those of us who have trusted Jesus, I wanna encourage you. Really ask yourself the question, Is holiness what you want? You want that holiness without which you won't see God. Then if that's what you hunger for, 
then what habits do you need to do that you can do to get you what you want? And then ask the Lord over these next 21 days to grow you through those habits. Fasting, praying, reading the scriptures. For the ways of Jesus to become second nature to you. Father, I pray that as we set aside this time over the next 21 days to pray and to fast and to seek you, that you would meet with us. God, there's nothing magical about 21 days. Just we see it in scripture. But we believe just like Daniel, after he did that, he actually looked better. He was actually in better health than those who engaged in everything around them. God, we actually believe we'll be healthier through this. And I don't just mean physically, but we'll be emotionally and spiritually healthier because you're forming us. Our new person, our new man, our new woman is being conformed to the image of Christ. And the problem is, God, we still have the old us with its desires. And so, God, we want to feed our new self. We want to hunger and thirst for righteousness by developing these habits. And I got, God, I pray that you would bless them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.